it is my privilege and a joy to proclaim the word of God today. Uh, as our, um, our scripture today will be Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Uh, please stand as you uh, find your text today as we read it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Okay. The word of the Lord says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is work, now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your scriptures, Father, the, your word, uh, that you speak to us through this, Father. I pray that you would uh, just uh, use me as a mouthpiece for you, Lord, this morning to proclaim your word, to do it tru truly, rightly, Father, uh, that it would not be an error, I pray that uh, it would go upon softened hearts and ears to hear to what needs to be uh, taught, Father. And we pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. When the elders afforded me the opportunity to proclaim the word this morning, I had the option to choose my passage. And of the many passages, I chose my favorite, which is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This text so beautifully distills many gospel truths. But before we dive fully into this text today, let's step back and get our bearings of the, where we are in the Bible, in the text of the book of Ephesians. Uh, in the Bible, we're in Ephesians, which is in the New Testament, a book penned by Paul while he's in prison around A.D. 62, is addressed to the church at Ephesus, which is the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It is a letter of encouragement and admonition. The book of Ephesians can be broken up into two overarching uh, sections, verse, chapters 1 through 2, 1 through 3 as the doctrinal, and verse, or chapters 4 through 6 as the more practical. In chapter 1, preceding our text today, we find some of the truths of doctrine that are within it. I'm just going to briefly go through a few truths that uh, we see in cha uh, chapter 1. Verse 4, we're a chosen people before the foundation of the world. Verse 7, in redemption through his blood. Verse 13, we have a guarantee through the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, God's power through the resurrection of Christ. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head of all things over the church. And verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we end chapter 1, knowing that we are a chosen people, redeemed through the blood of Jesus, and because of the resurrection of Christ, we have the head of the church, which is his body. And as we dive into chapter 2, our text for today, verses 1 through 10, 
we'll break it up into three sections. Uh, verses 1 through 3, how we once were. Verses 4 through 6, but God. And verses 7 through 10, the gift of grace. We'll start off in chapter or, uh, verse 1. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins. For this section, we'll notice that everything is in past tense. This is how we used to be. In verse 1, Paul is talking to you, as in the church. And we are seeing that in the ending of chapter 1, that Christ is the head of the church. And we know the letter of Ephesians is written to the church. Next, that we see that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Why were we dead, you might think, as we ask the questions of the text. I always enjoy connecting the Old and the New Testaments. This is one book we have. They connect, so let's do that. In my own personal study, I like to do that with my kids, and so we want to know that the Old and New Testaments are not siloed. They connect. There's so many awesome connections between our Old and New Testaments. So we can't unhitch the Old Testament from our understanding of totality of Scripture. And, and one framework we can use to understand the scriptures, old and new, is through covenant theology. We normally see covenants as agreements between two parties that each party pledges something to another. Though biblical covenants are different because they're not made by equal parties. God imposes them on human beings, creator to created. His grace is even seen in him making covenants with us the created. So let's go back and get into our text in Genesis here. We're in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. And the word of the Lord says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God here makes a covenant with Adam that if he eats the tree of good and evil, he will die. In turn, if he does not eat of the tree, he will live eternally. Theologians call this covenant the covenant of works because it was dependent on Adam's obedience. From Genesis 3, 6, we, see, we know that Adam did not succeed in keeping this covenant. He ate of the fruit. Adam is considered our federal head of humanity that means he's the representative of mankind, as in our president represents us on the world stage, and whatever, hap whatever he does will have an effect on us. <clears throat> that, um, so the, his sin is imputed or transferred to all his descendants, all mankind. In so, we all enter the world spiritually dead. We see this... Uh, succinctly summarized in Romans 5:12, and it says, "Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned." We now know why we we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now we need to briefly touch on and explain what is sin. The word comes from the Greek harmatia, to miss the mark. Our mark to try to hit is that of the moral law or the Ten Commandments. So sin is any violation of God's commandments in thought, word, or deed. We know from the text previously that we already missed the mark on the account of Adam. 
That mark that we missed, God requires us to meet perfectly all the time. No mere man is able to hit that mark. To sin against a holy God, the punishment is death. In verse 2 of Ephesians 2, we see, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We're now reminded that we walked in this way before the Lord saved us, following the course of this world, which Satan is our head. Notice that Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air. The world today is led by Satan, has no objective me measure. The world runs on feelings <clears throat> and has a great percentage of Western culture now holds on to some form of what we call postmodernism, which is defined as a philosophy that affirms no objective or absolute truth, especially in the matters of religion and spirituality. Brother, sister, we have an objective truth. Here in our hands or devices, the 66 books of the Bible are made up to make our Bible, our Holy Bible. And we see in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, for righteousness, in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. <clears throat> the course of this world is sin and death, led by Satan. But he is limited under the sovereignty of God. One very clear example of this is in Job 1, verses 6 to 12. And the word of the Lord says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put up a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. First we see that the Lord is initiating this conversation with Satan. We also see that Satan is given bounds that what he is allowed to do with Job. He is not allowed to touch or kill him, as we see in uh, verse, or chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord still reigns today as he did with Job. The sons of disobedience, which we see at the end of that passage, is a Hebrew-inspired idiom, meaning obstinate persons. And since obstinate is not necessarily our everyday vocabulary, obstinate is defined as stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion or chosen course of action despite attempts to persuade one to do so. In verse 3, it reads... Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Again, note that we're speaking past tense to the believer. We're talking to the church here. These are ways we used to be. 
following the desires of flesh and mind. We were by nature children of wrath. As we talked about, because of Adam, we are all by nature due wrath of God for our sinfulness. If, your kid, if you have kids or have been around children, you should have no doubt that you're born into sin. That I did not teach my children to lie, to cheat, to do any of those things, but they knew how to do it. And I, as their father, am in charge of correcting and pointing to obedience uh, the Lord calls us to. <clears throat> the wrath of God is the result of not meeting the perfect requirements of God. But thankfully, our God is good, and he has left us to have the wrath, he has not left us to have the wrath poured out on us. If the passage were to stop here, things would be very bleak. We are dead in our sin. We are due the full wrath of God. There's no hope. We can't make ourselves good enough for God, but the good news is coming. Our next uh, section here, but God, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Yes, now comes to the good news, but God. But is a very important word in the scripture. If you can think back to English class, but is called a coordinating conjunction, and it's used to connect ideas that contrast. So we're contrasting our death and sin, following Satan, and being alive with Christ, enjoying mercy, grace, and love with God, being the architect of it all. Rich in mercy. Mercy is defined as compassion or forgiveness shown toward someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. We deserve the punishment of our sin, and the sin must be paid for since we serve a just God. Our sin has been paid for by Jesus. Born of a virgin, as to not have the stain of sin, Jesus lived a life in full adherence to the law of God. He did not sin once, and he paid for our sin on the cross, bearing the weight of all the sins of those who will believe. And the blood of the spotless lamb was poured out on us in death, and he is raised to life in the resurrection, a living, victorious Savior. It was only through grace, we see also, the free and unmerited favor of God that we were saved. Uh, in Mark 1, verses 14 through 15, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. God does call us to repent and believe. We see in the words of Jesus. To repent is to recognize our sin, to be sorry for it, to turn away from it, and to believe, to trust, rely on, to have faith in the finished work of Christ. When that happens, we are imputed or given his righteousness. Through Jesus, we see the fullness of the covenant of grace. This is our good news covenant, the covenant of grace, which is that God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Previously through Adam, we were transferred his sin nature and were due death because of Adam's failure in the covenant of works. And we again, in all this, see God being the initiator, initiator of this covenant. Now let's touch on verse 5. And that we were reminded that even when we were still in our sin, that he saved us. We didn't have to clean ourselves up first, nor could we even do that. And he made us together with Christ through grace. 
looking at verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ is our mediator between God the Father. The two actions in this verse are raised and seated. The tense shows that there's instant and direct results of salvation. Because, Christ's resurrection, because of Christ's resurrection, those who believe in it are given new life spiritually now, today, whenever the Lord saves. The theological term to use would be regenerated or made alive in Christ. And after being raised, we're seated with him. And let's uh, take a look at Ephesians 1, uh, 20 through 21, which says, Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Throughout scripture, we see the right hand as the place of honor or significance. And we're, we're, with, we're with Christ at the Father's right hand, as we see in the text. Moving on to our uh, third section here, the gift of grace. And we'll read verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The ground of our salvation is God's love and mercy. How can we respond? From the Westminster Shorter Catechism we have in question one, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. One earthly outworking that I love to see bring the glory to God is our Lord's Day service here. Within our service, hearing the body reciting scripture together, having all voices raised up in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, coming to the Lord in corporate prayer, hearing the word of the Lord preached rightly, and all these elements laid out for us in scripture which the Lord has prescribed. Every moment in our service is to point to God and to give him glory. With verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. After reading this verse, what came to mind was the five solas. I'm sure if you've been around our body for a while, you've heard of them. We will eventually, I think, paste them in the foyer. <clears throat> the five solas are the five Latin phrases popularized during the Protestant Reformation that emphasize the distinctions between the early reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. The word sola is the Latin word for only, and it was used in relation to five key teachings that define the biblical pleas of the Protestants, and they are. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. So we see the Bible as the sole source of authority for Christians. No pope, no church tradition is going to be over that. We want everything we do to be compared against the scriptures. Every sermon, everything we do in our uh, liturgy needs to be from the scriptures in some way. Point two is sola fide, grace, or faith alone, excuse me. This emphasizes the free gift of salvation, which we see in this verse. God is giving the, the gift of those whom he chooses. It cannot be done under our own will or power. So it just emphasizes that it's in faith alone that we uh, are saved through all these uh, pieces here. Uh, point three. Sola gratia, grace alone. Grace as the reason for our salvation. In other words, salvation comes from, from what God has done rather than what we do. 
And number four, solo Christio, or Christus, depending how you read it. Christ alone. Jesus' role as our, highest pri our high priest who intercedes on our behalf before the Father. The gift of God through the Son. And the final one, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. The glory of God as the goal of life. Rather than striving to please church leaders, to keep a list of rules, to guard our own interest, our goal is to glorify the Lord. The idea of soli deo gloria is found in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. One small little... Uh, I heard on a podcast recently was talking about the life of Johann Sebastian Bach and how he got some copies of Luther's uh, translations of the Bible and just kept on digging into them. And three quarters of his thousand pieces are he intended for use in worship. And at the end of all of his writing or his uh, uh, music pieces, he'd put SDG at the bottom, Soli Deo Gloria. So just thinking of our lives, our livelihoods, to all glorify God. <clears throat> Uh, moving on to verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation is not produced by good works. Good works follow the work of salvation in Christ. Though we're not to boast in ourselves, we boast in Christ and what he's done through us. <clears throat> and our final verse for today, uh, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In this final verse for today, God even prepares the works for us beforehand. In our obedience, we walk in those good works that God has prepared. Salvation is not based on works, but the good works that Christians do are the result and consequence of God's new creation work. God chose whom he did whom he did to make them holy sons and daughters, our thrice holy God the Father. We are to conform our life in what would bring him glory. We are his image bearers. We look at good works as the fruit of our salvation, not the cause. So let's move on to how do we apply this? What does this mean for our lives today? I would say in point one, of application that we live lives exemplified by humility and joyfulness. The scripture exhorts us to live with humanity, humility, excuse me, knowing that we did nothing to earn this gift, that it was given to us. In contrast, temptation would be, become filled with pride, arrogance, thinking we played a part or we're doing a great job. We should also live joyful lives. We have attained the greatest gift ever. And that should also exhort us to go and tell others about it. We don't want to hold this to ourselves. We want others to know. In Romans 12, 12, it says, Rejoice in the hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And additionally, we, our second application point is holiness. We strive to seek obedience to the Lord through holy living. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, If you do not desire to be holy... I do not see that you have any right to think you are a Christian. And in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, 
for I am holy. And also in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2, and this is in the NASB translation, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us, and to let us run the endurance with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before us endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Brother, sister, let us strive for humility and joy in our lives and fight for holiness in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, all with the heart to glorify God with all that we are. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you uh, for your scriptures. We thank you for the many truths that are within them that give us, uh, that are all used for training in righteousness and truth, Father. I pray that uh, you would uh, just work through this text today in our hearts. Uh, let us uh, think about it uh, after we leave this place and uh, that we would uh, just uh, have a better understanding of you, Lord, and just a more a love for you and what you've done through us through Christ. Uh, we pray all this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. And let us sing together, Is He Worthy? <clears throat>